Acts 2, verses 14 and 36 through 41 read. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. The word of the Lord. What shall we do? What shall we do? That was the question that the people in response to this sermon were asking. And that's actually a familiar question to Peter and the apostles and the people delivering the sermon as well. They were in the middle or maybe just coming out of a season where they were desperately asking this question themselves. What shall we do? You see, right now we're we're following up on the Easter story and we're looking through the book of Acts at the Christian church and the way that it uh, behaved and was led by the Holy Spirit uh, over that time immediately preceding Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. We're seeing the, the foundations, the early church. Uh, and, and for the last few Sabbaths and for a few more Sabbaths, we're just going to keep on looking at this season right after Jesus' death and resurrection and seeing what the, the church and the apostles and ultimately the Holy Spirit led people to do during that time. And the disciples were coming out of a question, um, a questioning season. What shall we do? You see, uh, John 20, verse 19, describes the situation that the apostles were in like this. So Jesus had, had died. He had been crucified brutally. And the disciples' hopes were crushed. They were afraid. They didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know if their own lives were in danger. Uh, they, they thought everything that they had been doing for the last three years, just overnight, had gone to waste. And so they were hiding together. John 20, verse 19 says, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. They were hiding together with doors locked. Now, this is a powerful image, especially when we consider that back in you know, 30 AD, or whenever this happened, they didn't necessarily have the same lock technology we did. Locking the door wasn't as simple as turning a deadbolt or turning a key and pulling it out. They didn't have a nice metal doorknob that had all this mechanism inside that you could just easily lock. No, locking the door back then, at the very least, meant putting a bar over it. And it might have meant putting furniture up against it, like literally barricading the door shut. And so we're seeing these disciples right after three years of ministry, Jesus' death, now they are huddled in a room 
afraid for their lives with the door barricaded to the outside. And all of this is happening only 40, 50 days before the story that we're reading right now. So the disciples know what it's like to not know what's going on, to have this question, what are we supposed to do? And it's actually really interesting because the, the way we get to this point itself and the sermon that we're looking at right now in Acts 2 actually also appears to be unintentional. It isn't something that they went into with a plan. And I have, I have a few, few reasons for thinking that. First of all, it's right after Pentecost, right? The Holy Spirit came down and inspired them. They were continuing to pray together. Maybe they had gotten rid of the barricade, it doesn't say. Maybe they weren't quite as fearful. Jesus did come to them, after all, in that room and show them that he was alive. They had seen him ascend into heaven. But they were still meeting together, not quite able to answer that question, what shall we do? And they were waiting for something to happen. So the Holy Spirit comes and inspires them. And all of a sudden they start speaking in a bunch of different languages. And I don't know exactly where they were, if they were in a public place or if they were just in a room, but somehow people around them started to hear and a crowd started to gather and they started to think, what in the world is going on? What is happening? And some people start asking, are they drunk? Uh, is, is there something wrong with these people? And so that's one of the other reasons why I, I, I don't think they, that this sermon was really intentional, because this sermon is the first time the gospel story, including the resurrection, this is the first time that it's told publicly. This, this Acts 2 is the first time we see someone telling the story of Jesus' resurrection publicly. And yet, it starts, it starts, um, sorry, I left my Bible <laughs> in the room over there. It starts in verse 14, Acts 2 verse 14. Verse 15 says, okay, verse 14. So Peter says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. The first time the gospel is preached, it starts by saying, we're not drunk. We're not drunk. So I don't think that was intentional. I don't think they had a very good plan about what they were going to do. And so the people hearing this story ask this question, what shall we do? And it's a question that the disciples were well acquainted with and maybe still asking themselves. This is the first time the resurrection story is told publicly. And this question, what shall we do, is something that I think a lot of us ask as well on a daily basis. Thank you so much. Whether it has to do with our career, or our academics, our school, or our relationships, or our jobs, uh, I already said that, our politics, whatever it is, I often find myself asking, what should I do? And I think that's a question that all of us can relate to. What are we supposed to do? 
And the answer that Peter gives is astounding. Uh, verse, Acts 2, verse 38, Peter replies, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The word repentance has been said by some to be the worst translated word in the Bible, at least in the New Testament. Repent does not come very close to grasping the, the Greek word metanoia that it represents. Uh, metanoia literally means like changing your mind, uh, or very succinctly, I like to think of it as that Apple slogan from the 90s, I think, or the early 2000s, think different. Think different. Repent is the English translation of the Greek word metanoia, which essentially means think different or think differently. And then baptism is a metaphor for rebirth, right? Being born again. And so the answer to this question, what shall we do? Peter, Peter basically says, you need to think differently. You need to re be reborn. Essentially, he's saying, you need to be a different person. What shall we do? The question isn't really about we in the first place. You can't do anything. This, this answer, be a different person, actually circumvents the whole us in that question, what shall we do? It's kind of like God saying, we, you think we are going to do something? No, I've got this. Let me do something, and I'll solve this problem. I'll make you the different person that you need to be. Or maybe I'll be the different person that you need to be. But this is really hard for us to accept. It's really hard for me to accept. I think it's really hard for a lot of us here to accept. Because everything in our social environment, everything in our programming, points to personal responsibility, and to a zero-sum situation. Everything is competition and based on, based on a scarcity mindset. Um, there's a, one of my favorite movies, probably my favorite movie, is called Three Idiots. Has anyone here seen Three Idiots? Yes! Okay, it's a Bollywood film. And it's one of the highest grossing Bollywood films, probably one of the highest grossing films of all time. It's, it's a big deal. And this, this, this movie is about three college students, their college experience. So I really want to organize maybe an Advent Collegiate watch night sometime, and we can watch this movie because it's so relevant to the collegiate experience. But it's about these three college students that are going to the most competitive engineering school in India. And they're just surrounded by this environment, right, of like, succeed or die. Like, you have to be the best. And it is, it is so competitive. And this movie starts off with these three incoming first years uh, coming to the campus. And the president of the school, or the provost, comes up and he gives a speech to welcome them in. And he's holding in his hand an egg. I almost brought an egg to illustrate, but I thought it might get messy. 
He's holding an egg in his hand, and he tells them about the cuckoo, cuckoo bird. Um, he calls it a quail in the movie. Maybe it's a translation thing. But he tells them about a, a cuckoo bird. Now, a cuckoo bird is a, a brood parasite, meaning it lays its eggs in the nests of other birds. It lays its eggs in the nests of other birds, and this allows it to lay more eggs than any other bird, because it doesn't have to be responsible for taking care of the chicks after they hatch. So it, lay, it goes around to all the different nests. It can actually lay its eggs faster than most other birds as well. So it just kind of pops in and lays it and gets out. And when the bird hatches, the little chick somehow instinctually pushes the other eggs out of the nest. They fall and they crack. And so he very dramatically drops the egg. And then he goes over, this is in, in the movie Three Idiots, the president of the university goes over and there's a big box of files. And he takes the box and he throws it on the floor in front of all the students. And he says, you are the cuckoo bird. And these, these files are the files of the students whose places you took to be here today. You are the cuckoo bird. In this zero-sum situation, for you to be here means someone else did not get in. Someone else is missing out on that opportunity. So that's the world that we live in. This is the programming that we grow up with every day from the moment we're born. In order for us to succeed, someone else has to lose. And if someone else succeeded, succeeds, that means we're missing out on something ourselves. That's why it's so hard to accept, it's so, so hard to think differently about this question, what should we do? That's why it's so hard for us to accept the answer that it isn't about what we do at all. The we is not including us. So we're programmed with this, right? We are, we are built to believe in this competitive, scarcity, zero-sum mindset. So how can you or me have the confidence to accept this? To accept the idea that the answer to what I need to do is to be a different person. Meaning, not, that, not, not even that I have to change who I am, but that someone else is the one who has to solve this problem. This, this verse even goes farther. It says, not only repent and be baptized, not only be somebody else, but do it in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So not only is this the answer to solving the problems of what's happened in the past, but it's also the answer, it's also the source of, of a gift to you, free gift, the Holy Spirit. So how can we have the confidence to accept this? I think the answer is right there in verse 38. It says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. We can start to have confidence in this we can, have, we can start to have confidence that it is not up to us when we start to identify 
with Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ. Valerie Carr is a Sikh American woman who came of age during 9-11. She knew the first person who was killed as a hate crime after 9-11. He was a Sikh man who was wearing a turban, standing at a gas station, the gas station that, that he owned, and he was shot. She called him uncle. And this experience shook her uh, so much that she started traveling around the country uh, collecting stories of Sikh Americans so that she could share them with the broader United States. Because at that time, and even now, we had no idea who these people were. There was kind of a, a PR situation. And the general American public just was not aware, and, and really, in many ways, continues to not be aware. So she was traveling around collecting stories to share. And once she, once she collected stories, she created a documentary, and then she went around showing it, and she would get up, get up front and field questions from the audience. And one of the times when she was up fielding questions, this was after they had shown the documentary, a, a white evangelical man stood up and he said, you know, I know exactly how you're feeling. I have also experienced persecution. I have been forced to, I don't remember exactly what he said, but you can picture it, right? Been forced to not, not say the things I want to say, right? Or not, uh, not experience the world the way I'm used to experiencing it. And at first, she actually embraced this. She was like, yes, we have some common ground. We both know what it's like to suffer in some way or another. But afterward, she was thinking about it a little bit more, and she started to realize that, that maybe that wasn't quite the way that she should have handled it. Maybe, maybe the, they weren't quite equivalent, the, the Sikh American experience and the, the white male uh, evangelical experience in America. And so she started in, in her book, she writes a book called See No Stranger. And in this book, she writes about the importance of understanding. Of um, understanding. And it's really gotten me thinking about the importance of understanding as well. See, what, what she helped me to understand is that trying to unite unity without understanding each other first results in erasure of one person or another, right? If, if two people try to come together, and one side maybe understands, right, but the other side doesn't, in order for them to unite, that means the misunderstood part has to go, right? Has to be denied, has to be forgotten. So unity without understanding causes erasure. And what, what reading this book by uh, Valerie Carr has has gotten me thinking about is that until we allow ourselves to be changed by the person that we're trying to love, we won't actually be able to love or to reconcile with them. You see, Jesus gives a really good example of this. Jesus was continually being changed by us, the people he came to love. I mean, first of all, he became human, 
for us, the ultimate change. Then he was baptized by a human, reborn as a human, by a human. Then he was crucified as a human, by humans. Over and over again, Jesus was changed by the people he was trying to love. And in the end, it was this experience, Jesus coming, identifying with us, that gives credibility to the love that he claimed to have for us. It actually makes that love possible because what it means is that in order for us to unite with God, we do not have to pretend like part of us doesn't exist. We don't have to be erased in order to unite with God because of what Jesus did. Ultimately, what, what Valerie has helped me understand is that listening to someone else's story, this is a pushback that we get a lot, right, right, right now, especially um, in race conversation that we're having, where, right, like different states and stuff are, are making it illegal to, to study about uh, racism and, and, and racist history. Um, what I think we're missing is the truth that hearing someone else's story does not deny your own story. For me, as a white man, hearing the story of someone who has been impacted by racism does not deny my own experience. It's not saying anything about my experience. It is, it is simply allowing me, actually, to expand my own story, to let, to, for, for someone else, for my story to start to include a broader perspective than it had before, to include someone else's story in my story. And so what, what I've started to really think about recently is, is just that hearing someone else's story is not erasing your own story. It is actually expanding your story. And so I'd say that until white people let racism affect us, racism is going to persist until we become changed by it, by like hearing the stories and participating in the stories of people who have been affected by it. We will keep on perpetuating it. And that goes, that goes the same way with, with sexism, with ableism, with, with any kind of hatred and disregard for others. And really the wild thing is that once we do this, it's an expanding of our story. And it actually can allow you, can allow me, to understand our own stories even better. In, in this movie, The Three Idiots, the friends start out with all these preconceived notions of like what they need to achieve when they're in school. But as they start to get to know each other, and as their own stories expand, they start to realize one of them goes into photography instead of, instead of uh, engineering. He starts to realize like that's really his passion, right? Um, and another one realizes he can let go of some of his fears because he's seen other people overcome them. And so as our own stories expand, it actually allows us to tap into our own stories in even more powerful ways. So this question remains, what shall we do? And the answer is still the same. Think different, be reborn, be a different person. And we can do this by 
identifying with Christ, by identifying with other people, by allowing other people's stories and Christ's story. That's why we come together every, every week, right? To remember Christ's story and to bring that into our own story. But by doing that, we, we become changed. Um, so what shall we do? We can identify with Christ, identify with other people. Um, but just, just to wrap things up, I want to bring out one more visual from this, this film, Three Idiots. Thank you for, for bearing with me. It's, it's really a, a beautiful film. Uh, the theme running through this entire film is pursue excellence and success will follow after, pants down. Now, now the point is obvious, right? I mean, may, maybe it goes without saying, pursue excellence and success will follow after. But I think that pants down part is really important because what it does is it helps us see how silly the goal is, success, right? Because what matters in this lesson is not the success, it's the excellence. In the case of this sermon and what we're talking about today, I would modify it, I would amend it a little bit, and I would say pursue understanding and unity will follow pants down. Unity is not actually the most important thing. Unity isn't something to pursue at the cost of other people's experience. Rather, it's understanding. That, yeah, it leads to unity. But the point is understanding. As we understand each other, and as we understand God, then our story starts to include the stories of the people around us. To start to include the story of, of God, God's self. And in doing that, we identify with God. And that's why the answer that we see here in Acts 2, verse 36, the last line of the first sermon about the gospel is so important. Be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, and I'd also add, with whom you died and received new life, is Lord and Messiah. And that is what matters. <laughs>